for so many people history is just this repository of names dates and places that they forget this is a documentation of very multicolored human experiences the aspect of being human and their experiences and their emotions is at the core of our understanding of history which we sometimes miss out on and so when you look at a figure like the dancing girl and you imagine a person in it you can suddenly you know start to imagine a civilization that was people this is the for all time sake podcast by theosophy hosted by eric chopra and kudrat singh in this podcast we dive deep into the fascinating and multi-layered past of india all while keeping histories of emotions and experiences at the core of our discussions Here at Ethiopology, we believe that nobody should feel left out of history. We are not just sharing stories about the big names, dates, and places. We are also uncovering hidden gems from the footnotes of history, from overarching themes like society, polity, and economy to histories of art, gender, sexuality, fashion, horror, and more. We have got you covered. Welcome to this captivating historical journey. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the first episode of the For Old Times Sake podcast by Ethiosology. This is Eric Chopra and I'm Kudrat Singh. And in this series, Eric and I will be talking about the many layers of the Indian past, all while keeping the histories of emotions and experiences at the core of our discussions. Now, our aim is to introduce history aficionados from around the world to a multitude of historical narratives. and with this we hope to ignite curiosity and offer diverse perspectives on these stories you know since the time ethiology started as an instagram page in 2019 it has really emphasized on the belief that nobody should feel out of history and thus its work goes beyond mainstream historical narratives as it delves into the lesser known aspects of the indian past exploring stories literally found in its footnotes So without further ado let's start today's episode and Kudrat today we are actually speaking about a theme that's so close to our hearts you know this is the dancing girl from the harappan civilization dancing girl actually is also the figurine that decorates a logo and she really comes from this fascinating period in history the discovery of which is also equally fascinating you know we are looking at its discovery in the 19th century which literally pushes back indian history some 2500 years uh, but the amount of engagement with harappan sites before anybody really realized that this was a grand civilization that entire story is also so interesting you know we are looking at 1826 with Charles Mason who was a former East India Company officer stumbling upon the mound in the Sahiwal district in Punjab and assuming that this might have been the location where in the 4th century there was a battle between Alexander and Porus you also see then uh, many others visiting harappa over the periods you see uh, the archaeological survey of india's director general alexander cunningham also coming there but not being so excited by the findings and it's finally in 1924 when the then uh, director general of the archaeological survey of india john marshall finally realizes among everybody else who was there uh, working with him that this 
was a civilization, a Bronze Age civilization. And the discovery of the Harappan civilization was announced. He then dated the findings there and placed Harappa as a contemporary of Mesopotamia and Egyptian civilizations. And you know, Eric, a question that's often been asked is, what was so special about Harappa? Surely there were settlements in South Asia before this. So why was this so important? Now, the simple answer to that is that Harappa was the region's first civilization. And what that means is that it was a large settlement. It had its own distinct cultural identity. It had densely populated urban centers. You know, it wasn't just um, a collection of scattered settlements. And it had its own systems, very important among which was the system of writing. It should also be noted that the expanse of this civilization was pretty spectacular. So its horizontal expanse was all the way from the western end of Baluchistan to western Uttar Pradesh. And vertically, it stretched from Punjab to northern Maharashtra. How fascinating is that? And it should also be added here that there is a clarification to make. So you may know the civilization as either the Harappan civilization or another popular term is the Indus Valley civilization. Now, both of these terms have their own um, distinct histories. So Indus Valley was the name given to this um, by John Marshall, who we just talked about uh, when he first found Harappa. But this has stuck around as a sort of continuity from colonial times. On the other hand, archaeologists prefer, usually, to name a civilization or a culture based on the first site that is discovered. And that is why the name Harappa is technically maybe a little bit more appropriate. But now the general consensus is that Harappan culture encompasses all the points that we want to make here. Now, also let's talk about when the civilization actually existed. So it's usually divided into three phases, which is the early, mature, and late phases. And if we combine all three, then the spread was sometime between 3200 BCE to 1300 BCE. But if we particularly talk about the mature Harappan phase, which is the period from where we find the most urbanization and the most number of artifacts, that existed roughly from 2600 BCE to 1900 BCE. Now, what's so fascinating is that we have all of this information, but imagine how much it could be expanded only if we were able to hear the Harappans. Since we have failed to decipher the Harappan script and language, much of what we know is based on analysis of its material culture, the objects and build structures that the Harappans left behind. And um, it's interesting to note that figurines then that we are looking at constantly to understand the Harappan civilization, our understanding of these objects, these figurines, these artifacts is based on our interpretation. But since its discovery, there has been a lot of scholarly engagement with this civilization and we find ourselves amidst a sea of interpretations which we are going to be talking about today. So I hope that by the time we conclude this conversation, all of you will be able to appreciate the immense fascination around this enigmatic civilization with the focus on, of course, the dancing girl. 
And uh, what I actually want to ask you, Kudrat, is that when was the first time that you heard of or read about the dancing girl? And what was your initial reaction? You know, Eric, um, I have to say that much like Cunningham, I did not have a great first impression of her when I first heard of her in the sixth grade. And I always thought that she would be this grand statue, a monument to the civilization. But I didn't think much of it. It wasn't until I finally saw her in person at the National Museum in Delhi that I realized how truly captivating she is. I completely understand where you're coming from because that's something that we've also heard so many times when we are doing museum walks. When we start with the dancing girl, a lot of people who are seeing her for the first time, they always think, wait, this is a figurine that's just 10.5 centimeters. Like, <laughs> what was it that we were looking at in school? What were we studying in school? How is it that she has emerged as this you know, this defining moment in Harappan history. Absolutely. So, so instead of taking the usual route of discussing, you know, the expanse of public infrastructure and sea trade and the sweep of urbanization, let's today explore Harappa through the lens of this one figurine, the dancing girl. Now, as I said, this is a 10.5 centimeter figure of bronze and it becomes a corridor into the many layers of history of this Bronze Age civilization. Looking at the dancing girl alone can open up a Pandora's box of all that is most interesting about Harappa. For a silent civilization which was discovered in the 20th century, for her to then emerge out of the civilization as a defining moment is a very interesting thing to discuss. Now, this she's referred to as the dancing girl. And she was possibly used as a decorative item. Now, before we go into understanding why is it that she is called the dancing girl, Kudrit, uh, let's talk a bit about her features. So before we talk about her, of course, it's very important to know what the dancing girl looks like beyond the silhouette that you see in images or also in our logo. So if you look closely, she has a round face with very prominent facial features she has a large nose, um, lips and eyes, all very defined features. And a lot of people have called her eyes half-closed contemplative eyes. Again, from her face, there have also been uh, many questions about uh, where she was from, you know, what kind of present-day societies she resembled and so on. But we don't know much for sure. Apart from that, you see that her hair looks nearly pulled back from the front but in the back, you see a very thick braid, which is so neatly tied and it slants downwards, almost like a, like a modern day waterfall hairstyle, <laughs> right? Yeah. And if you look at the figure from the back, you will also see that there's a slight arch in her back, which is probably what makes her look like this um, dancer. And one of her legs is straight, but the other one is slightly bent at the knee. Again, a continuation of the arch in her back. Um, she's this lean woman. You know, she has one hand on her waist and the other ex is extended straight. Her arms are quite long, actually, uh, compared to the rest of her body. And she wears 25 bangles on her left hand. So her entire arm is covered by bangles. Whereas in the other arm, there's only four. Um, so again, we don't know what that means, but there's definitely a very clear distinction between the jewels on each arm. Also, in terms of jewelry, you see she wears a necklace which has three pendants. 
And there is an empty space between her hands, which suggests that maybe there was something that she was carrying. You know, maybe it was a baton, maybe it was a sword, maybe it was a prop as part of her dance. We don't really know. But we do know that apart from her jewelry um, and apart from the missing thing that she was holding, she is bare-bodied. You know, Kudrat, you wonderfully described how she looks. And I think this is for another podcast episode, the problem with museumization, because, you know, you cannot get the full view of the dancing girl at the National Museum. You can only see her from the front. Absolutely. And that's why on so many of our museum walks at the National Museum, people have looked at her and said, that's it? Because they simply can't see what's going on behind her, what's going on on the sides. So they don't get to consume this full image that the dancing girl represents. Exactly. I mean, you know, the whole image of her braid at the back changes the way in which you imagine her if you just look at her from the front. Because so many people on the walks have often said, is that a headdress or is that like a crown that she's wearing on top? Uh, But... But why is she unique apart from, you know, her masterful execution? Why has she stuck around as the symbol of Harappa? Now, let's talk about um, why. I think it has to do with her name too, you know, the dancing girl. And as I just said, that it's interesting that she is called the dancing girl when the civilization is silent. So how do we know that she was dancing? Now, this name actually comes from the persistence of the image of the Indian dancer. We have John Marshall, who actually named her the dancing girl because of the notch girls of colonial India. The court dancers who, as Pran Neville would say, had the white sahibs spellbound. And, you know, this term being associated with her has had its implications in the present. I remember that there was this documentary in which there was a replica of the dancing girl and some dancers around her said, you know, we can hear this statue dancing or we can hear her anklets. And <laughs> and, it's, and it's interesting because it goes on to show how Upinder Singh says historiography overwhelms history. And... and It's interesting because, yes, you're able to give a more, you know, it's convenient. You're able to give a more concrete term to something and you don't have to have it be unnamed. But, you know, another preferred title is the Mohenjo-Daro girl. Um, That's a more uh, appropriate term in terms of the fact that we really don't know what she was doing, whether she was dancing at all. And the fact that she was found from Mohenjo-Daro, much like how we call the Harappan civilization, the Harappan civilization, because Harappa was the first site we discovered, we can also use the word Mohenjo-Daro girl. Eric, you very rightly asked, why does she continue to captivate us? For me, like I said, my first experience and my present understanding of her are drastically different. And for me, what is so interesting is that she is the most human form that we have from Harappa. And, um, you know, she is, as Gregory Possel says in his book, filled with life more than anything else from Harappan art. And I think that her captivation is partly based on how human she looks and also how distinct from other Harappan art. Mm. Because she has so much of movement. She has so much of life. She is brimming with personality. And this becomes especially important because if you see other figures of human beings from Harappa, um, maybe except the priest king who also wields a very imposing personality, 
So for example, we have figures that are called mother goddesses in abundance and their persona does not feel as human. Maybe because of the emphasis on their jewelry, on their headdresses and on their general perception as fertility symbols more than anything else. They don't really feel so human. Similarly, we also have many headless torsos. So you have a, a headless seated man. There are some busts, some heads, and few of them are able to invoke the kind of human connection that the dancing girl can. So when I saw her at the National Museum, to me, she felt like the closest I could get to Harappa. This emotion is actually also reflected in a movie based on the British archaeologist Mortimer Wheeler, where a dialogue says, she's about 15 years old and perfectly confident of herself and the world. There's nothing like her in ancient art. Fascinating. Um, that's a buzzword for this podcast, isn't it? Fascinating. We've said that many times, but it truly is. And you know, the one thing is, what our work constantly makes us discover is that for so many people, history is just this repository of names, dates and places that they forget this is a documentation of very multicolored human experiences. The aspect of being human and their experiences and their emotions is at the core of our understanding of history, which we sometimes miss out on. And so when you look at a figure like the dancing girl and you imagine a person in it, you can suddenly, you know, start to imagine a civilization that was peopled rather than this sort of, you know, imagination of it as a dry culture with just buildings and a spectacular drainage system that we talk about multiple times. <laughs> Um, so, yes, that's interesting. But I think, Kudrat, um, to be fair to the craftspeople of Harappa, um, one of the reasons that she also sticks out is because she's made of bronze. So, uh, Kudrat, let's speak a bit about her execution. Yes, her execution has actually been um, something that scholars have noted time and again for its sheer brilliance. And they have concluded that the Harappans possessed a very advanced understanding of metallurgy. They were very aware of the locations of various metals, even if these were located at far off places. And they possessed the technical skills to mold these metals as per their own aesthetic sensibilities. What we see in the dancing girl is the use of what is called the lost wax technique. And this is something that is still used in parts of India today by traditional artisans. So what happens in this lost wax technique is that a model is first made out of wax, then it's covered with clay, and then holes are made as passages for the wax to melt out when the item is heated in the oven. And then molten bronze is poured into these holes, and when the clay is dry and cool, it is chipped off and the object is given shape. So you see the use of wax, clay, bronze, all simultaneously, along with tools which were specialized for the purposes of chipping and shaping and so on. And all of this goes to show the mastery that Harappan craftspersons had on their work, not only with bronze, but also with stone, with shell, with beads. And with all of this, they were able to create some of the most beautiful surviving items. And yeah, 
lovely lovely items and you know kuzrat it's only when you put this in context when you put all of this together and not look at the dancing girl in isolation but with the moment she emerges and the craftsmanship behind her the idea behind her that we can truly appreciate history and its tangible remnants you know and i think we can go back and tell our sixth grader self to just wait for it wait till you actually see her in the museum and wait till you actually learn about the moment in time when she was discovered that that it's only then that you can actually appreciate her and you know a lot of people don't know about uh, the replica or the companion of the dancing girl which is kept in the karachi museum do you know about her i mean you told me about her for <laughs> yeah. one and you also told everyone who came to our museum walks about her because no one seems to know that there is actually another dancing girl yes and and you know it's um it's all she's also made out of bronze um and jonathan m kinoa has talked about how her hair is tied in this horizontal bun the traces of her almond shaped eyes we also see bangles adorning her upper left arm a few bangles above the right elbow and very importantly though um she's also made of bronze so he says that perhaps this was made for a specific ethnic community um so it's interesting actually the purpose of the dancing girl and i say that in quotes and this companion of hers and what could they have meant for the patrons and the 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 idea that they represented during that time because what we know them as now as is the dancing girl or the mohenjodaro girl yes and you know eric the more we learn about the dancing girl the more complex and vivid this story gets and all of her interpretations that we've talked about the process of her making and the general feeling that she invokes for the viewer all of them speak to us like nothing else and even though the harappans are silent their artifacts speak to us they speak on their behalf and imagine how fascinating it would be if we were actually able to decipher the script and perhaps even find out the dancing girl's real name who is she it's 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 a very mixed feeling right because at one you are like excited to figure out what is it that the civilization is hiding so to say but at the same time the revision of our understanding entire revision of it for historians it's going to be a tough day at work but i think we're looking forward to it aren't we kudrat absolutely and that is the story of the dancing girl as we know it so far and telling the story as we know it so far is what we do at ethnology Our Instagram is updated with snippets from the Indian past every other day. So if you are someone who's interested in any period of Indian history, we invite you to take a look at Ethnology on Instagram. Until then, we will be back with another episode of the For All Time Sake podcast very soon, where we'll try to use the word fascinating a little less, but we promise you it will be fascinating. I am Kudrat Singh And this is Eric Chopra and thank you for listening to the first episode of the For Old Times Sake podcast by Theosology.